Welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 18th of August. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Morning, Tom, and today we are going to brief you on New Zealand's strategy to eliminate COVID-19. The New Zealand no effort is spared in tracking down every last case in their contacts. The goal is no transmission at all. New Zealand's been the envy of the world, but they've just had to postpone their election because of one COVID cluster. So is the reality of elimination starting to cost dearly? Yeah, we'll get to that in a moment. First, here are the big stories of the day. Genomic testing has revealed 99% of COVID cases tested in Victoria can be linked back to the return travellers in hotel quarantine. Yeah, that was evidenced by the Doherty Institute given yesterday on the first day of the Victorian inquiry into that bungled hotel quarantine program. We also found out private security guards were given dodgy advice about personal protective equipment. Yeah, that Victorian inquiry kicked off on the same day that New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian offered this unreserved apology to the families affected by the Ruby Princess saga, which was linked to 28 deaths and more than 900 cases of COVID-19. I want to apologise unreservedly to anybody who is continuing to suffer or has suffered unimaginable loss because of mistakes that were made within our health agencies. That was her apology. And look, it followed the release of a review into that bungled handling of the Ruby Princess by Brett Walker SC. He found serious and inexcusable mistakes by New South Wales health helped spread COVID across the country. That apology came on the deadliest day of the pandemic so far, which was yesterday, 25 coronavirus deaths, all of them in Victoria, where Melbourne is entering a third week under curfew. Yeah, and while case numbers continue to fall, a grim warning from health authorities who say it's entirely possible that death rate will continue to climb. And plenty of interest across the ditch in New Zealand at the moment, where the resurgence of COVID has had a big political impact, Annika. Yeah, so the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, has delayed the election by nearly a month from September 19 until October 17. I do need to provide certainty, a sense of fairness and a sense of comfort to voters that this will be a safe election. And I do think a little extra time to assure them of that is important as well. So this comes after a further nine cases yesterday, bringing the total of this New Zealand uh, Auckland cluster to 78. So it's a big price to pay for one cluster, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, when you move elections, you start to look like you are ignoring democracy, but they can't move it too much further because they have to have it by November. So this is their last chance to hold the election before the end of the year. We'll find out a whole lot more about that in just a moment on the briefing. Now, Tom, have you seen the latest ad campaign around COVID? My mum's in ICU with COVID. We visited her a few weeks ago, but I didn't know that I had COVID. Yeah, this ad's interesting because it targets young people specifically. That's right. It's because young people are actually overrepresented in the number of cases of COVID. Many of them are actually only getting mild symptoms, but they're passing it on to family and friends and colleagues. Tom said he just had a cold. He works with Sophie. He said she just had a sniffle. We all had COVID and didn't know it. Got weird when they used my name in that ad, but um, I guess it really brought it home. <laughs> um, the campaign's aimed at jurisdictions without significant levels of community transmission, so it won't air in Victoria. Here's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Nick Coatsworth explaining the strategy behind the ad. The ads are a reminder that no matter where we are in Australia, particularly those seven out of the eight jurisdictions where we have little to no COVID-19, that we all 
need to remain vigilant. Now those ads will start running on TV this week. Yeah, that's a, probably a, a tricky task, isn't it? Keeping people vigilant in those states where they haven't had a lot of transmissions in recent weeks. Yeah, I was out and about in Canberra yesterday and there wasn't a lot of social distancing going on. All right, in a moment, we'll take you to New Zealand. As you heard earlier, New Zealand has postponed their national election because of one cluster. I have decided on balance to move the election by four weeks to the 17th of October. So this is a big call. The Auckland cluster is roughly on the scale of many of the clusters that New South Wales has dealt with in recent weeks, like, for example, uh, the Casula Crossroads cluster. It's hard to imagine our leaders pushing back a national election after that. The decision highlights how different their approach really is. In New Zealand, they're going for an elimination strategy, whereas we are pursuing a suppression strategy or aggressive suppression. We remain in what we describe as the suppression phase. Uh, we're not in an in eradication mode, nor we are, are we in the, uh, the uh, other mode, which would just see some sort of herd immunity approach. Yeah, so our approach means we try and live with it at very low levels and jump on any community outbreaks. New Zealand's elimination strategy has worked very well. Initially, after the national stage four six-week lockdown, Restrictions were then lifted and life returned to normal and they had no new cases for 102 days until last week. We are asking people in Auckland to stay home to stop the spread. Auckland was put back into stage three restrictions and the rest of the country into stage two. Now those restrictions have been extended and as we said, their election has now been postponed. So is New Zealand starting to pay a bigger price for their elimination strategy and how different really is it to ours. Professor Michael Baker is on New Zealand's Health Ministry's COVID-19 Technical Advisory Group, and he's an epidemiologist from Otago University. Michael, thanks for joining us. We were watching with envy, but is elimination about to get a whole lot more difficult in New Zealand? Well, it's somewhat more complicated. I should say kia ora from New Zealand. Um, we, Of course, we've been watching the events in Australia also very carefully. One of the things about the elimination approach is that you have to plan for setbacks. I mean, that really means outbreaks. And hopefully the outbreak doesn't turn into a major epidemic. And obviously in New Zealand, we were enjoying having uh, over three months with no restrictions at all uh, internally and obviously still managing the borders. And I think uh, people are getting very comfortable with that. Even though we kept planning for outbreaks, it was still a shock when we got what was a very small cluster initially. And of course... Once you see a cluster, you know, even with the basic epidemiology of this virus, there'll be a lot more cases. Now, New Zealand were pursuing an elimination strategy, which seemed realistic because you're an island and a small island. But after 100 days, it did sneak back in. So there's been a few theories about how this happened, whether it was a leak from quarantine or whether it came in from freight. What do we know about that and what do you think the strongest theory is? Yes, I think when you're looking at outbreaks, you start obviously with the, the most likely sources and then you work through the less probable ones. And given what we know about how this virus is transmitted, it's respiratory droplets and probably aerosols and also surfaces that these droplets land on, they're always the, the sources you expect. And we know that people, um, a portion, quite a large proportion of people, maybe 40%, don't have symptoms and some of the rest have very mild symptoms. Because we haven't had any virus in New Zealand, you're immediately thinking it's come from overseas. So the ways it comes in, well, number one is, of course, on 
returning New Zealanders who are in the managed isolation and quarantine facilities, very much like the quarantine hotels you have in Australia. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the difference between elimination and what Australia keeps saying we're doing, which is an aggressive suppression. The example we get here is, say, measles, which was only declared by the World Health Organisation to be you know, Australia got rid of it in 2014. Now, up until then, we had long periods where we didn't have the virus, you know, measles in Australia. And then we'd have small outbreaks and we dealt with them. But it wasn't 100% gone. We hadn't eliminated it. So what's the difference between elimination and an aggressive suppression? And how long does it have to be gone to be declared eliminated? Yes, no, they're very good questions. Basically, it's all about the goal With elimination, the goal is no community transmission at all, and you accept that you may get outbreaks because we obviously don't have a vaccine. Our tools for controlling this disease are quite limited, and we know uh, unless we seal ourselves off entirely like some islands have done, we're going to get people coming in, and uh, mistakes obviously can happen. But that's elimination. Your whole goal is no virus. With suppression... It's you've decided that you're going to live with the virus and you're just going to keep levels of transmission low um, so they don't overwhelm your health system and to minimise the harm. And you probably put a lot of effort, in, obviously, into it protecting vulnerable people, so keeping it out of uh, residential care facilities for the um, elderly. But what's the real difference there? Because, you know, you say it's no community transmission, but you still get outbreaks. Isn't that what we're experiencing here in Australia? Or don't those outbreaks imply there's some level of community transmission? It's, it's to do with partly the, the vigour of, of your approach. A better example in some ways is um, countries in Europe where they can't manage their borders. And similarly, at the moment in the UK and North America, they're saying, look, we're just going to um, keep the transmission of the virus at a low level, but we're going to accept that you're going to have some cases. And one of the differences is they don't put so much effort into following every case and every line of transmission. Whereas in New Zealand, um, no effort is spared in tracking down every last case in their contacts. The goal is no transmission at all. And it does mean you throw everything at every outbreak and every case you see until you've got rid of it. That's not what's being done in England, say, for example, and in, in, um, most of Europe. In England, they basically only tested people who went to hospital. They didn't test people in the community. If you turned up to see your doctor with what was probable COVID symptoms and you otherwise, you know, you're reasonably well, they just sent you on your way. And they said, oh, stay at home for a couple of weeks. So it's just quite a different approach. The interesting thing in Australia is even though your political leadership has flip-flopped a bit on the terminology, at one stage you said, oh, no, we're not doing what New Zealand's doing, we're not doing elimination, we're doing suppression. And then it became our suppression slash elimination. But actually most states and territories in Australia have succeeded just as well as New Zealand had succeeded before our last outbreak. You've got rid of the virus for for months, I think, or many weeks anyway. My impression is that's what you're trying to achieve in Australia. I think the other difference is that you, in an elimination approach, if necessary, you go up into a very intense lockdown. I think if our numbers start to grow in Auckland, that's on the cards that we would go into a level four lockdown and actually extinguish the virus. Now, I don't know if any of our listeners are the same, but when I look at a lot of my friends in Europe, they seem to be travelling to different countries and going to the beach and enjoying their summer. So... 
If we're pursuing an elimination strategy or aggressive suppression, whichever, whatever way you want to call it, is it actually ever possible to reopen your borders like we're seeing in Europe? You can't have quarantine-free travel with other countries that have cases. Managing your borders is the big, if you like, the price you're paying for this. Obviously, we were hoping that Australia and New Zealand would both achieve elimination and then we could open our borders at a certain point. And I think at one stage it was looking quite promising. Yeah. That's the um, challenge, of course. It's worth noting, of course, that most European countries are having to look at some element of going in and out of lockdown uh, because they're going to see case numbers rise and then they're going to have to suppress it again. You got some good news this week that New Zealanders might be able to travel to the Cook Islands and perhaps we will see a bit of a Pacific bubble later in the year. How do you think Australia is tracking with New Zealand? When will we see, you know, the flights from Sydney to Auckland and we'll all be able to get, travel freely between each other's countries? Yes, no, we're, we're looking forward to that. Look, if, if both countries um, succeed in getting their outbreaks under control and then um, have a few weeks, I mean, after four to six weeks of no new cases, in the context of doing lots of testing, you can say you've basically eliminated the virus. It, it, it isn't magical. It doesn't hang out undiscovered for weeks at a time. It basically it depends on living in our respiratory tracts. And once you've got rid of all the cases, that's the end of it. So I think it's very doable for both Australia and New Zealand. And, of course, much of Australia is succeeding. The other thing um, I think is very interesting is if you look at Asia – the very successful economies there that are, are roaring ahead have absolutely embraced elimination. They do not want to live with this virus at all. And that's mainland China, Taiwan, Vietnam, and a number of other um, Asian countries. I would say if we're getting our leadership from anywhere, I would say it's from Asia rather than certainly um, Europe, UK, and North America. They've got both uh, the worst of both worlds. They're getting a high health burden and the economies are really struggling. Michael, I imagine, you know, the people of New Zealand have been able to come with you on this because you've been very successful. Even going back into stage three, I imagine people are coming for the ride because, you know, the strategies work so far and stage three is not that difficult to live with. But stage four is a whole nother level. Now, you went into stage three after four cases in that Auckland cluster. What will it take before you have to go into stage four? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, what um, we would be looking for, I think, is um, that the outbreak is not being contained. Um, we're starting to see numbers rise and we're getting onto that exponential curve. And then the contact traces are not able to keep up with the spread. And then that takes a lot of cases because the system now has a lot of capacity. At that point, I think we would consider... Uh, level four and possibly level three for the rest of the country if we saw cases outside Auckland. And this is also a new thing for us, the idea of a regional approach rather than a national approach, which is what we had last time. They would be the sort of conditions. That decision wouldn't be made lightly. I mean, I think it would still be um, some way off. I think the message or the experience from March is that jumping on this very going, as the Prime Minister said, hard and fast was a winning formula in March. And I think the country would support doing that again if necessary. 
All right, Michael, it's been really fascinating to hear the inner workings of your strategy. Thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. Oh, look, it's great to be talking with you. And and really, I'm in regular contact with my colleagues in Australia. And of course, we're very much with Australia and, and hoping that you also succeed in stamping out this virus quickly. It's partly our self-interest because we want to get over there again <laughs> and enjoy visiting Australia and catching up with our friends and family. Isn't it interesting? It feels like we, we want to travel to each other's countries more than ever now that we can't. <laughs> yes. All right, that's it for today. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the vaccine hesitant. Why does that attitude exist? And why does science say that we've got nothing to fear? Look forward to bringing that to you. Um, stay in touch with us. If you ever have any ideas for The Briefing, send us a DM on Instagram at The Briefing Podcast. Catch you later. A Podcast One production.